Well, good evening, everyone, everybody. Yeah, who's that? I have had Johnny Cash's song, I've Been Everywhere, man, stuck in my head all day today, I promise you. Uh, so thankful to be home. Um, it was funny, we were at a little church there in Louisville on Sunday morning and certainly missed all of you. And um, one of our children who generally sings with all of their strength just sat there through the worship time not willing to sing. And I nudged him a few times and later I found out it's, there were the church that we were at probably seats 500 people and a lot of the songs that we sing, they sing as beautiful worship service. Uh, but my little one just said, this isn't my church. I don't know about this. So I'm very glad to be back with you all because I got to hear that particular child sing just a, a moment ago, and that's a joy in my heart. So Psalm 140. Psalm 140. In fact, if you would stand and do honor the, to the reading of God's Word tonight. David here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's some argument about whether or not David wrote this particular psalm, but it's an academic discussion that I don't think we are going to entertain tonight. I think that David is the author, but of course we know that God is the ultimate author of these words. So with that in mind, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net beside the way they have set snares for me. As I read those words this afternoon, I was reminded again, this has got to be about Jesus. Isn't this how uh, the world treated him? Continuing in verse 6, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. This is God's word to you and I tonight. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence and so thankful for this body, so thankful for your word, so thankful that we can gather here tonight under the sound of your words. Father, might we not just hear them with our ear, but might we incline our heart only by your spirit to be changed and molded and 
more attuned to worship you because of what we walk away with in our understanding of what you have given us here. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What we have been discussing for some time now is that these final psalms in the Psalter, beginning with Psalm 135, are chiefly about worship. They tell us what worship is and how we are to worship God uh, in spirit and in truth. But as we read this particular psalm, there seems to be kind of a question mark. Wait a minute, Jane. This psalm is about wicked men, those who practice evil. This doesn't seem to fit this category of worship very nicely. It doesn't seem to to fit into that that bailiwick very, very well. And so the question is, does a psalm about evil and evil men who are incorrigibly wicked, does it fit and belong with the others that are written chiefly about praising God? And I would make the argument that it does for two reasons. First, it is a reminder that we are in an, even, uh, an evil world. In times that we praise God in the greatest purity in spirit and in truth, moved along by the Spirit of Almighty God, we must still admit that we live in a broken world beset with sin. Secondly, in spite of its theme, Psalm 140 does deal with praise particularly if we look to the last two verses. As the psalmist writes, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Psalm 140 is in fact used in in Romans chapter 3 as a witness to our depravity. As we come to this text, it flatly describes who we are apart from the work of Christ. And that alone should cause us to praise Him. Acknowledging the reality that we are those who love evil incorrigibly without the grace of God. And yet Christ in His kindness has seen fit to set his love upon us in such a way that we are no longer those people who desire to devise wicked schemes. And for that, we should be thankful and give praise. The first two stanzas of this psalm are nearly parallel. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 5 really parallel one another in what they are uh, speaking about. They, 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 they describe those who live lives pursuing evil, and not evil with some grand motive at the end, but evil just really for evil's sake. Evil because they are people who love to do evil. Uh, one author uh, acknowledged and mentioned a psychiatrist by the name of M. Scott Peck who wrote a book called The People of the Lie. And this particular psychiatrist in New England wrote extensively about all of his years of practicing psychiatry and coming to the conclusion that psychiatry had failed to acknowledge that there are some people who merely do bad things. 
There are some people who are just idiotic. There are some people who are just downright foolish in this world. But there is a category of people who are, in fact, evil. Uh, Individuals who are given over to a lifestyle of pursuing evil merely because it is their nature. Uh, He describes one of his um, clients as being an individual who lies to him merely just for the fun of it. And while that might be bad and immoral, uh, this individual does it just for, for fun. But in other cases, there are people that he counseled who invariably did things to their children, to their spouses, to people they worked with that really could be classified as evil just by the sheer nature of how destructive these people were to those who were around them. And one such uh, client was a woman named Charlene. And uh, the psychiatrist asked Charlene, you, you were raised in a Christian home, right? You were raised in the confines of the church. And she said, yes. And he said, well, well do you know why, uh, what, what the church teaches, what the Bible teaches about why humans exist, what the ultimate end of humanity is? And she said, yes, we exist to glorify God. And Dr. Peck said, well, well, and kind of anticipating that she uh, would respond in some affirmative measure that she would need to move in that direction of glorifying God, uh, he gave time for her to think through that. But after this reflective silence, she merely said, I can't do it. There's no room for me in all of that. That would be death for me to begin to glorify God. And Peck was silent for a few more moments, thinking again that there would be an emotional wave that would come over this woman as as she realized that she had just verbalized that there was nothing in her that wanted to bring glory to God. But instead of having an emotional outburst, she simply screamed, I don't want to live for God, I will not, because I want to live for me. Friends, that's the description of evil. And it just so happens that it's the description of each one of us apart from the grace of God. We want to live for ourselves. We want to, we want to have power in this life. To rule over the circumstances of life, but in our varied forms of evil, there's really no reason beyond that power other than we want what we want. We want the world to serve us. We want to establish our kingdom. Well, while this psychiatrist has a compelling argument, I think that David is even more compelling as he describes in these first two stanzas what the evil person looks like. And really, we have to remember again here that Paul picks up on what the psalmist writes in Psalm 140 in Romans chapter 3, and he describes evil men who seek to to destroy him, is fully aware That people devise evil schemes that they want to execute power on the earth, not for the glory of God. Friends, power in and of itself is not the problem. 
It's how we execute that. Men and women who are godly will not be individuals who kind of turn into wallflowers um, and, and do nothing when they are faced with evil. They are people who will stand up to protect and use what power they have to defend innocent ones and to live righteous lives. What is most disturbing, though, as we look at this passage is to think about where Paul picks up in Romans 3 and he gives us this collage of, uh, of verses describing the human race collectively. And just so we're reminded, this is in the context of no, not one. Uh, this includes all of us apart from the redeeming grace of God. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 12, if you want to turn there, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. You hear the Psalm 140? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are, ri- are ruin and ministry. Uh, m- sorry, misery, not ministry. <laughs> ah, that was a good faux pas. Uh, There's an entire excursus there somewhere about the ministries of so many men who devour congregations by telling them lies. You know, I'm sorry, I'll I'll, I'll make this excursus. I was, um, some of you might not be aware, but uh, Southern Seminary and the Southern Baptist uh, Baptist Convention at, at large went through a period of time in the 70s where they really went liberal. Um, and, and we're man-centered and all of that nonsense. And there's an individual by the name of uh, Albert Moeller who took over Southern Seminary in the, uh, I think it was in the 90s, early 90s. And that, this is on the heels of the Baptist conservative resurgence, which I'm, uh, I think there's so many problems in the convention right now. Anyway, Dr. Moeller takes over uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and one of my friends that I, uh, I visited over the weekend lives in a house that was there on campus, and, and one of the people that lived in that house was kind of the, the spearhead of all of the liberal movement inside that particular theological seminary throughout the 80s, and my friend and I were just talking about all of this and talking about Dr. Moeller and how thankful we are uh, that the seminary is theologically conservative now and rooted in good, solid doctrine. And through the course of that conversation, um, my friend looked at me and he said, Jay, you have to remember that Dr. Moeller was lied to as well. That when he was a young man, his pastor told him things that just weren't true. Not out of malice necessarily, but uh, didn't preach and teach solid doctrine. And he had to, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, be taught what solid doctrine is. None of us are born reformed. Uh, We all are dependent upon the grace of God to grow in our theology and doctrine. There's no child that has been born into this world... Um, that, that comes out with a Bible in, in one hand ready to herald the doctrines that we need to live on. There is uh, an entire class of people, gosh, I don't know how I got here, uh, that live out their ministry 
in a way that is destructive. And here's the sad reality and something we can all pray about. Many people who stand behind pulpits just like this one don't even realize that they're pandering lies to their congregation. But that will not dull the judgment that is due them. So let's read these verses over again. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lip. The, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what humanity is. Speaking of this psalm, uh, Charles Spurgeon says, David's enemies were as violent as they were evil. And they were as crafty as they were violent. And as persistent as they were crafty. That's true. But if Paul's use of the psalm is accurate, these judgments also must be made of each one of us. If Paul's exhortation that all of us have lived in a Romans 3 type of living and and context, then what we have to realize as he's quoting Psalm 140 is not to read it in a way where we go, yeah, God, that's the world out there. We have to read these words and reckon with them and praise God that He took us from the world out there. That we, these words are about every one of, each one of us, apart from His benevolent mercy. We are violent, evil, crafty people. A number of, the number of young men I interacted with over the past couple of weeks as I was around Southern who had graduated and had went out and started ministry, and the story would end with, I went there to love people and to preach the clear doctrine that is found in the Word of God. They rejected it and got rid of me. It's a joy to tell those brothers, well, glory be to Christ, that you would stand there and tell them the doctrine. Their rejection is something they will answer for, not you. You see, when we come to these words, we have to bow down And we have to recognize our own evil. And we have to pray not God fix the world, but God deliver us from evil. Our own evil. We need a Savior who can save us from ourselves. And that is in fact what we find in Christ. In Psalm 139, David prayed, you'll remember, for two things. First, he prayed that God would keep him away from evil men. Secondly, he prayed that God would lead him into the way everlasting. And you see, what we find in this is that David did not want to be kept from evil people because he was too good for them, but because he recognized that he shared the same evil nature. He prayed, keep me from evil people because he understood that he as well was evil and needed to be restrained by the grace of God. And and ultimately what we find is the connection between the two Psalms and the use of Psalm 140 verse 3 in Romans chapter 3 remind us that we can never make progress in the Christian life unless we begin with the recognition of our own wickedness before a holy God. 
The church today is full of ministries and pulpits that, that want to promise eternity through trite prayers and silly programs. But you start to declare, as our brother Chad did this last week, the holiness of God. And there's a whole class of religious Christians who are going to say, don't talk about God being holy. Why is it that they do that? Because they don't want to reckon with the fact that there is a holy God and they aren't. Holy. Seeing these verses in light of our own personal sin doesn't negate our need for deliverance and protection from other people, though. There's a way to rightly read Psalm 140 where we see that it's dealing with the fact that this world is, in fact, beset with evil people who desire to destroy innocent people. We call them politicians often. But they're in all of our community and they are inside the church in many areas. Again, pulpits are filled with people like this. And there is a real reckoning with the fact that, in fact, the group of people that needs to cry out to God to be protected from a lost and dying world are those who have been snatched out of that world. Because as you begin to reckon with your own depravity, your own sinfulness, and the reality of a holy God, and you begin to seek, by the work of the Spirit in your life, conformity to the image of Christ, you will be the target of evil men. It's precisely when God is delivering us from ourselves that we most need protection from others because evil people hate those who are being saved by the grace of God for the glory of God. So what do we do when we are surrounded by the people of the lie? What do we do when we find ourselves beset with terrible evil? The answer is that we must do what David did. We must turn to God as the only one who can deliver us from others and ourselves. We need to place our needs before Him and cry out to Him and we need to praise Him for the deliverance that He alone can bring into our lives. The only answer to the, solu- to the, to the problem of evil is to turn to a holy, sovereign God. Spurgeon had a sermon on the second half of this psalm, and I don't at all hesitate to rip off his points because they're fantastic. And it's Spurgeon. You know what will ruin you as a preacher is to read Charles Spurgeon because once you read him, you can't get what he says out of your head. Like, it's just, yes. There's so many brothers like that that are a gift to the church, and I'm so thankful. Uh, But beginning with verse 6... Uh, it, David traces through this last uh, bit of this psalm, and he has five points on five important things that David says, and I want to share them with you. One is possession. Verse 6, David says, you are my God. The, the ground for David's appeal to God is his relationship to God. God is not just a God. God is His God. God is the one true triune Jehovah. The one in whom He places all of His hope. You are my God, David says. And those simple words, each one comprising one syllable, 
should not be taken for granted because they present to us an amazing truth. It's not amazing to think about the reality that every human being on this planet really belongs to God. It's not amazing to think about the reality that all of nature belongs to God. It's not, it's not, it's not overwhelming necessarily logically to reckon with the fact that every star that is hung in the sky belongs to the Creator God because He creates it. He sustains it. It is all His. But what is absolutely mesmerizing is that David can come in verse 6 and call God His own. To say, God, You are my God. I belong to You, but You belong to me. It's something that we couldn't dare de- declare or claim of a holy God if it was not God, God's affirmation of having given Himself to us. He says to Abraham, in regard to Abraham's descendants, I will be their God in Genesis chapter uh, 17. He says to Moses on the brink of the Exodus from Egypt in Exodus chapter 6, I will be your God. And afterwards in Exodus Chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The words, I am the Lord your God, occur 22 different times in the book of Leviticus. And in the New Testament, we think about that doubting Thomas who fell at Jesus' feet. And what does he say in John chapter 20? He says, my Lord and my God. It's an amazing thing that sinners can approach a holy God and claim Him as their own. So the question for each one of us tonight is, is Jehovah, the God of the Bible, your God by faith in Jesus Christ this very minute? Can you say, you are my God? It's one thing if we can say that to the pastor. It's one thing if we can fill out a card that says, I belong to God. It's something else entirely when we can go before the face of a thrice holy God and say to Him, You are my God. What an amazing statement that is. The the, the possession of knowing the joy that God is yours through Christ alone. Secondly, there is a petition In verse 6, give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. Whenever we turn our thoughts to God, the first thing that that should strike us is God's holiness, His majesty, and by contrast, our own sin. We, We never should come to God claiming that we deserve something from Him because of our good works, because of our faithfulness, or even our sincerity. I can think about probably a hundred times as a young teenage boy sitting in a Southern Baptist church in the middle of Missouri and hearing the Gospel proclaimed in this way. Jesus died to pay the penalty for everyone. And if you would just turn from your sin... And with all of your sincerity, you have to be real about it. And and, and do good works for Him. And and the the litany would go on and on and on and on. If you would, and then fill in the blank. Beloved, that's not the Gospel. The, The Gospel is not, you must bring something with you 
to restore your right relationship with a holy God. That's not what is happening here. It's not what happens anywhere in Scripture. And yet it's what happens in so many pulpits today. We are at best unworthy servants. And the only way that we can ever come to God is only on the basis of His mercy. You see, part of the problem is, uh, these are rabbit trails, I hope they're helpful. Part of the problem is, we have gotten to a point in our church religious thinking where sin is not that big of a deal. And God's holiness is brought... Bad theology always does two things. It raises man up and it brings God low. But when we leave God holy and high and upon His throne and man sinful and in the dirt, unable to do anything, then we have a reason to stand and declare the real Gospel and to tell people, don't wait on a preacher, don't wait on anything religious, just cry out to God for mercy. And when we think about the outpouring of revival around the world in times gone past, and even in our own nation, what you will find is not religious methodology. What you will find is a high view of God being lifted before the people, and in so doing, droves of people coming to God for His mercy alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The difference between David and his enemies and the difference between us and our enemies is not that they're evil and we're not. It's that we have come and we have confessed we have nothing to bring. We are morally bankrupt. We are wicked people. We are the ones from Psalm 140. And it is only by the mercy of God that we can ever claim that God is our God. Do you not remember the words of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Third, we see preservation in verse 7. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. And really, I'm not going to take a long time here, but verses 8 through 11 here go on to, to work out this subject of preservation being reminded himself that God had preserved him in the past, David also leans forward and asks for protection in the present against all people who would do harm to him. There is a cry, preserve us. And, And aren't we glad that as the church, we can cry out to God not merely to preserve our individual persons. We should do that and we can do that. But also that God would preserve His bride, the church, through all generations. And He's promised to do that. We also see here protection in verse 12. I know, David says, that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. David's confidence is in, in God has been growing throughout this psalm. He's reminded himself that God was his, and he, he, he not only is he his personal God, but he's the God that has protected him in the past. But, God, uh, but David also wants him to protect him in this particular moment. Now he looks to what is future and asserts confidently that God will act justly in the coming days as well. God will do it not merely for David, but also for the poor and the afflicted everywhere. 
For those who come to him suffering and needy, God will protect those who belong to him. What we find in verse 12 is the answer to the question, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes. He will protect those who belong to Him. And finally, we come to this principle, which is where we began this evening. And that is praise or worship in verse 13. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. David's confidence reaches a climax in this final verse. He's looked at those who are practicing evil and has identified their evil. He has looked to God, recalling God's protection of him in the past. He has expressed his confidence of God's handling of the future. And now he concludes that because God is God and because He acts justly, the righteous will praise His name and the upright will live before Him for His glory. I began tonight by asking, does this psalm really fit with the praise psalms? With psalms about worship? What we find in this final verse is that David's great psalm about evil and evil persons and an evil world doesn't end in despair. It ends with the praise of Almighty God. Friends, when we see the wickedness of our own generation, when we see the depravity that would herald and applaud the destruction of infant children in their mother's womb, when we see an entire class of politicians who want to rob certain individuals in our society to benefit others, to deprive people of their personal property, which is evil. Uh, When we see children murdered in the school systems, when we see truth being suppressed in unrighteousness, there is something in us that grieves and we just wonder, God, where are you in all of this? The answer is, that he is on the throne looking forward to the day when we will all give him praise that the evil of this generation and everyone behind in every earthly generation will be put away by his judgment in such a way that he receives glory for all of eternity. We have to see the evil in our day not merely as evil and that's it, but evil as a springboard for God to receive the glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight thankful for your grace and your mercy. Father, we're thankful that you've called us in the context of a wicked and perverse generation to praise your name. We were, prior to our conversion, part of that wicked and perverse generation. The only reason we have claimed to come before your throne tonight and to claim that you are our God is because of your divine mercy and grace. Might we praise you All the days of our lives, might we speak of you to those who are outside the body of Christ. Might we call people to repentance, not merely so that we can keep a track of our evangelistic success, but might we 
Herald the Gospel, the good news that you are holy, we are not, and that you are a merciful God. As we beg for mercy, you save. Might we herald that Gospel, not just for evangelistic success, but that you might be praised forever. In Christ's name, amen. On Sunday we were reminded in Isaiah chapter...